I'm Kate Daniels. In the U.S., we like to think of being leaders in the world, and we do that quite well. There are certainly great things that have gone on, but there is an area of life in these United States that is quite appalling, and that is with prison and incarcerations, where we are leading many developed countries in the world. This also affects how we treat juvenile offenders. Jean Traunstein, an activist, author, and professor at Middlesex Community College in Lowell, Massachusetts, she joins us with a very important book and story, Boy with a Knife, a story of murder, remorse, and a prisoner's fight for justice. Jean Traunstein, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Thank you. Nice to meet you too, Kate. Well, thanks. It's uh, incredible that we're having... uh, this opportunity for an important conversation uh, because this topic of our criminal justice system, about what goes on in the prison system, uh, and particularly here, Boy with a Knife is focusing on on our youth, on the juvenile criminal justice system, or sometimes it feels like an injustice system, but mm-hmm. I'm n- not going to go down that path. Because here, this story, you say it's a story of murder, remorse, and a prisoner's fight for justice. I think that there's, in the essence of this book, the story of uh, Carter Reed really brings so much important information to light that should, I think, really make a a big difference, really make a difference for people's lives, make a difference in our our criminal courts, would you say? Well, I think that there aren't that many stories about... uh, children who have committed, kids who have committed murder, uh, that we're hearing most of the emphasis that we're hearing right now in national conversations is on, quote-unquote, nonviolent criminals. And not that I think we shouldn't be talking about people who've committed drug crimes and, you know, all of the commutations that Obama has has had, and there have been some substantial amount more recently Um, although, of course, there could be more. Uh, But I think that if we're really going to discuss how to get our prisons, uh, to get rid of 2.3 million people that we have in prisons, and not all of them, but to really reduce the prison population, we have to talk about violent, people who've committed violent crimes, and how many of them don't need to be in prison anymore. And one great population um, are our youth, and there are youth who get sent to adult prisons, and they don't, in my opinion, need to be there. Exactly, and that is part, a, a large part of this story of Carter Reed, because here, uh, no question that there was a terrible crime, but. It, the book will tell the story, and we're not here to go through all of that this morning. The idea is to really hit some of the key things and have people really get out and read the book themselves, because I think that's where the all of the what leads up to the crime and then everything following that is so key here. We can't cover all of that in a half hour. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, but Car- Carter's case, Carter was 16, and he was definitely a kind of a normal kid. I mean, he wasn't 
um, he wasn't, I mean, he he had a quote-unquote typical dysfunctional family, I will say. I mean, his father was in prison. Um, he had a lot of issues in terms of the uh, some violence at home. But in many ways, he was a regular kid who had the thinking of a kid, uh, no no foresight into the future, um, impulsive, peer pressure, and all of those things, which we really didn't know about in 1993 when he committed his crime, are what we're now talking about in the kinds of things that motivate kids to do irrational acts. And again, as you said, the crime was horrible. He went into a classroom. He killed a boy with two other boys in a classroom in school. But who does that unless they have no understanding that they could be ca- not caught, but that they could be um, noticed, apprehended? It's just so illogical. And he didn't really mean to kill this boy, in my opinion. He meant to harm him. It was part of, again, the thinking of kids, let's get back. You know, my friend said this about your friend said this, and my group is doing this, and your group is doing that. You know, horrible kind of teenage angst. And while he meant to harm this boy, in my mind, he had no intention of killing the boy. And I think that is also very typical of kids. They don't connect actions, essentially, to consequences. Um, So Carter represents the kind of kids we see who get wrapped up every day in a system that often dictates the rest of their lives. And so much of uh, what went on that becomes uh, such a clear story uh, was revealed to you through uh, letter correspondence, never with the intent of it being a book on either side. But I think that that's where there's such great value of, of having the feelings and the ideas that went on for a 16-year-old telling it to you as an adult, an adult who's had time to really be able to spend time reflecting on it, I I think that uh, there's such important information here for us to really get a good understanding of what goes on with kids when when they're in the midst of that, that teenage angst, as you say. Mm -hmm. Carter wrote me a letter, and originally I had written another book, my first book actually called Shakespeare Behind Bars about doing theater with women in prison. And he had written me, having found that book in the prison library, he had been in prison at that point for 15 years, and he wanted help for a female friend and thought he just saw my name essentially on a book jacket and reached out to me. And I had no real intention of corresponding with him, but I was so surprised at how smart he was and he seemed so interesting and I couldn't understand how somebody could be could sound like this and could have done what he did I couldn't get it that he could actually have killed somebody when he was 16 I also couldn't understand how he could have gotten a life sentence it just didn't quite make sense to me now he got a life sentence eligibility to see parole but there's no guarantee when you get that kind of sentence And so the correspondence began slowly, 
And I'd say it took about a year before I really decided I wanted to write a book about him. Then we corresponded totally for about six years before he got out of prison. And one of the key things that did occur is that while he was in prison, you, with a a class of students, actually visited the prison. That is a, a fascinating experience and incredible that that opportunity exists. It is really not, um, it's not so surprising here in Massachusetts. We have, um, I, I'd say that the opportunities have gotten fewer, but this group called Project Youth, which is in many prisons, at least in our state, is a group of people who, many of them who've committed murder, and the point of the group, it's not like Scared Straight of the 1970s, which is to scare kids away from committing crime. But the reason why the prison allows it, I think, is because it gives these guys um, a way to reflect on their crimes. And at the same time, when they talk to kids, it's they're telling the kids not to do what they did, essentially. So that kind of exchange does happen. People go to prisons. Um, the tours have kind of evaporated. There used to be many more uh, opportunities to take students to go around and see the environment inside, which is a mixed blessing in different ways because sometimes you feel like you're just observing people and it's uncomfortable. But I've always thought the educational, uncomfortable for them, the people inside, I mean, but I've still thought the educational value for my students was worth that. And yet... None of us really were were expecting to hear a story from someone who had done something at age 16 when we went to the prison. At that time, we weren't. There were other people who also had done things that were horrible, you know, killing or, you know, drive-bys or so on. But Carter, his sense of remorse was was palpable, and that touched my students, touched me too. So that was uh, so significant in in the whole scope of of what went on, mm-hmm. and p- certainly what was happening for Carter is that he had had the opportunities, thankfully, because. I question how much is actually available in terms of educational op- mm. opportunities for inmates, be they juveniles or adults. Right. Well, no, Carter was not able to take college classes, got his GED, but because of the quote-unquote nature of his crime, they wouldn't allow him to take college classes when he was behind bars. And, um, you know, I like to say that Carter's success is not because of prison. He, it isn't. It's in spite of prison, and I think if he had been, he's a white, he was white, I think if he had been black, many things that happened for him would not have happened for him. In that sense, he was very, um, he was lucky. The fact that he was poor um, didn't help, but race is such a, um, when you are a black person, things happen to you in such greater degrees in terms of arrest, sentencing, getting out of prison. The fact that Carter was able to get a lawyer 
as a white person when he was behind bars. I mean, it was a pro bono lawyer. He couldn't have afforded anything. But I don't know if that would have happened as easily for him if he were an African-American person. Um, there is so much more racism. And still, Carter's opportunities were limited by his ability to, you know, scratch and claw, so to speak. He had to fight to get anything that he did get. So there are two things here. One, I think it is that's an important part of the story uh, about Carter is that it shows the inequities in the system. As you were saying, if a if a youth, if a man is a black man or a perhaps Hispanic, the opportunities or the the uh, dice is set against him mm-hmm. in this kind of situation. It, it's, again, unconscionable that in this time we still have such inequities that are perpetuated. Mm-hmm. And what we've shown more recently is that while juvenile crime has gone down, oh, the other thing I want to say before I get to that is that Carter committed his crime at the height of the super predator fear in this country. And super predator really was a code word for young black boys who people were scared were going to you know, keep raping and murdering and just all this irrational fear that in some ways we still see, but certainly has was never proven true. And yet a lot of laws were changed and crime we feared was going up, but now in fact crime has gone down and gone down precipitously. But racism and the way we treat kids of color has not changed and in fact has increased in many situations. So that just goes to show that the opportunities are even more diminished for kids of color. Um, I, I don't want to say that Carter's opportunities, particularly since he's gotten out, are great. He had trouble with jobs, had trouble with you know, different kinds of adjustment. It's not easy to, he can't tutor kids, even though he has a got a 4.0 average at a community college. He wasn't allowed to tutor because of the nature of his crime. No, it's hard to, even after 20 years, get a real start again. So it's important to note that while his chances are greater, his chances as he's gotten out are incredibly diminished because of the fact of his crime. And because of the fact we don't give people real second chances, I would say, as we sort of think we do. So that is still another hurdle that an inmate who's released, who comes into society, needs to overcome. So there's the, that other piece of it. We then, as society, need to ad- address this so that we are more not just accepting, but that we are ready to work alongside so that there isn't the recidivism because I it's really almost then set up for that to happen unless someone really has a great deal of support on the outside. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the Carter was able to he he was able to use his community outside of prison while he was inside in a way that I think is fairly remarkable. He wrote letters. 
Of course, he wrote letters to me, but he wrote letters to everybody. He wrote letters to the governor, to the, you know, he complained. He was not going to be complacent about any abuse that happened to him or anything he felt was unfair or, you know, he he needed that. He also, his family came to visit him. He was, you know, it's awful when you're 30, 40, 50 miles away from your family as you are when you're incarcerated. It's hard for people to often visit a prison. Um, and Carter was able to get visits and able to see his family. So that helped him a lot. And it is really remarkable, I think, that he was able to write these letters of complaint without feeling uh, or being limited by feeling there would be retaliation uh, mm-hmm. by the guards. Right. Well, he he sometimes there was, and most of the times there wasn't. They didn't know he wrote these letters, but most of the time he never got answers back from the letters that he wrote. So... I, I think it's important to say that the most one of the things that helps prisoners the most is their connection to the community when they get out um, and their ability to not necessarily go back. I mean, no, I, I wouldn't say go back to the same community, but to have people they can count on in the outside world, have people they can talk to, you know, therapist if they need a therapist, job counselor, whatever, there needs to be, you know, some people have a church, uh, there, there needs to be some kind of support system, and family seems to be one of the greatest predictors of success for people. And fortunately, Carter, in his case, does have that mm-hmm. uh, and had that all along, as you were mm-hmm. saying, Jean. Mm-hmm. Right. So these are important things for us to consider. And alongside that, the fact that it's still such a struggle coming out that uh, employers, potential employers, need to take a look at how they can support so that we become a country who is a leader in this case, in this kind of instance, rather than really falling along with, with uh, third world countries that incarcerates uh, so many of their people? Um, well, we don't, we have a box that you have to check when you have a job application in many states. And the box basically says, have you committed a felony? Um Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and sometimes the box is not there. But usually, when you get to the interview, someone will ask you that. So, there are checks in this country all along the way that make it difficult for you to get a job because as soon as someone goes to check your record, whether it's for college or whether it's for a job or other sorts of employ you know something you need in, for employment um, coaching etc your quarry your criminal record comes up and in Carter's case it will say for the rest of his life if, as long as he's on lifetime parole which he is getting off lifetime parole is pretty difficult it will say murder so that follows you forever and 
20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it doesn't matter. He's going to have those same difficulties. Now, if he gets a job, he has a job right now, and it's working um, for a company, and it's night shift, and he it's a decent job, but it's certainly not the kind of job that he would like to have at almost age 40. Um, it's you know, it's a job, and he's lucky in that sense. He makes enough money to live, but he does. He the ambitions he had as a child, if he had not gone to an adult prison, if he had been kept in a facility, and these facilities aren't great either, juvenile facilities. But at least if he'd had education with his peers, at least if he'd had um, more job readiness, at least if there had been some ability for him to get out earlier, he might be in a different place than he is now. And so Carter's misfortune then, aside from the fact that there was a a terrible crime committed and a young man lost his life, another young man is essentially was essentially losing his life by being tried in the adult system but and as you said Jean this was during the time of the super predator idea uh being perpetuated so uh, the the deck was really stacked against him in terms of being able to have that kind of opportunity to uh, serve his time in a juvenile system mhm i i think it's important to take the story a bit away from Carter for a minute and to think about the fact that 200,000 such kids every year, used to be 250 when I started the book, and now since crime has gone down, it's 200,000 kids are tried, um, they're arrested, tried, go through the adult system, have to face, um, you know, at, at ages of 14, 15, 16, and in some states, 17, they have to face a lot of things that have to do with a, a, a one-size-fits-all kind of approach so that if you're a kid and you, you, you all of a sudden find yourself, even if it's not a violent crime, a lot of kids still go through the adult system. And you're you know you're in a police station you're whisked off to a cell you're in a courtroom all of this as an adult in adults is kind of the way ways adults are treated um, you're making decisions you have no idea how to make you are in a cell in a prison with somebody who could be 40 you know 50 years old, you know, somebody that is not your own age, or if there's some fear, you might be in solitary confinement. Uh, We now have a law against rape in prison, so if you're too young, uh, a youth can't be kept within sight or sound of an adult. But, um, you know, even if you're 18 and that's the age of adulthood, that's still pretty young to be kept in a cell with, say, somebody 40. It's just you know, and you're a new person. So everything is 
shocking and frightening. And I think if we think of ourselves at age 17 or 18, most of us even were not prepared for something like this. And it's very difficult not to be afraid and have different kinds of issues that result in mental problems or, um, you know, etc. I mean, there's so many different kind of things that happen to kids. So that's why I wanted to take it away from Carter's story and just make, just put it in a, a, a broader term because I think it's so important to, to see this as a problem across the country. And Carter becomes my example, but it's such a big problem for kids. Yes. Thank you, Jean. That is certainly a, a focus here is to tell Carter's story, but it's not a singular story. It is, mm-hmm. as you said, perpetuated so much, too much in our country. And uh, we that's why this awareness is so key so that mm-hmm. we are ready to step up and do something about this, to, to be part of a, an instrument of change. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So in Boy with a Knife, we do have this really incredible story. There's, uh, I think, an important piece of it here, too, that comes back to essentially what we're doing now. This is not the news media, but this is media. And media did play a big part in what went on uh, Mm -hmm. with what, you know, both in print and with audio of how I felt. My take on it was there was so much hype, Mm -hmm. which wasn't necessarily and distortion. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what happened, Jean? Yes, I'm really glad you brought that up. The one of the things I've discovered is that newspapers radio, television, have a potential to create the narrative. They define the narrative. And this has come back in a, I mean, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but uh, basically it's come back even now. Um, many of the people, uh, when my, as soon as my book came out, many of the people in the community who were harmed by Carter, who had heard the narrative, who believed things like, Boys Joyful After Murder, which was a headline in one of the newspapers. Carter Monster, you know, the Carter Killer, who did not have the face of the crime. They did not know the person who was capable of change because they believed he was not capable of change. They had the same reaction to my book um, that they had to seeing the headlines, to hearing all of this. Uh, there were many one-star reviews on Amazon, not about my book, but about the fact that I was putting out this book. There was a Facebook group. There were protests. It was really quite something. And it's not that the family did not suffer, because they did. And even 23 years does not heal the pain of losing your brother or your son. I mean, it just doesn't. But the kind of strong belief that a child is not capable of change is very hard to penetrate. And I am trying to do that with a book that is very threatening to that narrative. So we do create the way we want people to see these kids. 
and we can also uncreate it. But that is very, very true, and you can see it with, you know, every time you could see it when Michael Brown, when we had the Ferguson issues, when you know a young black boy is in trouble. The first thing that they're saying is, "Oh, he was carrying." Uh, we thought he might be carrying a, a gun. We didn't know that kind of press coverage unleashes incredible prejudice and ways of looking at things that are not necessarily true. Yes. And so that is so discouraging that here we are then in 2016, and thus what has actually changed if there's still such a reaction to your telling the story that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's just this Mm closed-mindedness to wanting to say, well, what if? Let's see, maybe, rather than, you know, totally outright say this is just not acceptable. When people read my book, they, and even people who were in the community at the time, I've gotten beautiful letters. When people do read my book, they say, my God, kids can change. They, if given the opportunity to see this, they, and change by change, I mean, they grow up, first of all, you know, that's one thing that they do. I mean, that brains change, they become, you know, they do change just by the nature of growing up. But I also think that the self-absorbed interests that so many kids have and what got Carter into this incredible, crazy sense of what was right and wrong, loyalty to friends above all else, et cetera, et cetera, that changes because once you see what you are capable of doing, the consequences of your actions, I think, also moves people into being more concerned about the rest of the world, about the harm that they can cause or have caused, and the families that they've hurt, communities that they've harmed. And that is what makes us able to have a better life when we have, when we are able to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person. So... Yeah, I don't really remember where I started there, but but that's where I'm ending. <laughs> yeah. It is an important story. Boy with a Knife is is about Carter Reed, but it is really a bigger story because right now we do have these 200,000 youth that are in the criminal justice system and we need to just really take a look at this and understand, you know, newer psychology is talking about the brain development not really kind of getting to where it's set until age 25. So, mm-hmm. you know, to to look at these young kids, these teenagers, and uh, to just decide that they are absolutely no good, uh, you know, really, we need to take a stronger look at this, and I feel, Jean, really, with your book, you're giving us that opportunity to give it thought, to look at all these different angles, and not to say, "Oh, this is just okay." Really, mm-hmm. to see, uh, you know, the the grappling that was done by by Carter, uh, even I think even yourself with doing all the research that's gone in, into it, we really benefit from uh, from so much. Well, thank you very much. Well, I thank you, Jean. I really do uh, appreciate that this is an area of such interest 
for you because you were working, as you told us early on, uh, with women in in the women's prison and and doing the theater work there. So obviously you have a heart for this. And I feel that this came through this morning that we've had a a really important opportunity. And I, I trust that together we're going to, you know, take a look at making good and positive changes that will only benefit each and every one of us, wouldn't you say? I hope so. And I I think that um, anyone who wants to do this work and get involved, there are a lot of opportunities. And I think I indicate some of those in the book, too, that, that, you know, we, but the first step is to be educated. Yes. And you're right. Yes, the book is mentions these various opportunities, and we can certainly find them in right here in our own community. There, There's ample opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, Jean Traunstein, I do so appreciate you and your work. Thank you for taking this time with us this morning. Thank you, Kate.